Coming to you live from Santa's castle and workshop, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm Seamus Connolly. I'm Garrett Strother. Ricardo, hi, hello. Before we dive into the Rankin and Bass cinematic universe, we're gonna cover a little bit of news. So I think let's dive in with the No Time to Die Bond trailer. Daniel Craig's last outing is 007. Did you guys check it out? Nope. I did not watch it, actually. I've been a little burned out on the Craig Bonds these days. Just, is You're that still a... gonna go see it, aren't you? Well, yeah, I'm gonna go see it. It's a James Bond movie. Is that an artifact of Spectre, Seamus? Is that all the genesis of your burnout? I, I think so. It's yeah, just... It's I, I do know that Christoph Waltz is in this new one, he is. reprising his role, which I feel like, you know... Round two, if they get his character a little more fun, and I mean, like, Rami Malek as the Bond villain this time around, I feel like is going to be very cool. The trailer looks pretty incredible. I mean, it's easy to make a trailer look good, I think, especially for a movie like this, but... Spoilers for the end of Spectre. At the end of Spectre, Bond walks away from MI6 to go off with Leah Sadu and presumably live happily ever after, but as we can see in this one... Maybe it's not so easy after all. What secrets does she have in her past that might be coming back to haunt Bond? It looks like Skyfall with extra steps, really. I forgot everything that happened in Spectre. Honestly, just now. you saying the ending shows me how little I took. Like, oh, yeah, like, I guess I that didn't did remember. I, yeah. Like, saying it now. You know, but, I mean, like, I loved Skyfall. Skyfall's so great. If, yeah. if this one is a little more Skyfall, I'm I'm, I'm going to be happy, I think. Skyfall's great, Casino Royale's great, and I'm a Quantum of Solace defender. No, so. man, I'm, I'm right there with you. Quantum of Solace was, was cool, man. It was very cool. So no more Craig. Yeah, now this we're going to... the last one. He's Southern now. We're going to really find out where this Bond is going. Are they going to do something a little more radical with the new Bond casting? I, I hope they do. I hope they go wild. I think Rami Malek looks really good in this, which I'm not usually his biggest fan, but he's all scarred and he's got a weird, creepy porcelain mask on. I knew he what? was going to be like kind of like serial killer-y vibes of a Bond villain Like as soon as I heard that he was going to be in it, and that kind of sounds like what they're going for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But this whole thing has really big Skyfall vibes, and I'm curious to see where they go with it. Yeah, I'll check it out. Dang, it's his last one. Because Daniel Craig hates doing it. Yeah, he, he is as done as we are, I think. Well, imagine the toll that that must take on your body, especially the Craig style of Bond where it's really intense yeah. Intensely choreographed, hand-to-hand combat where you're jumping off of moving trains and airplanes and helicopters and tram cars. Like, what and- do you know about the suit thing, right? The suit thing? Well, in shots where Daniel Craig's just standing still looking like James Bond and posing, they make him wear a suit that's a couple sizes too small. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Just to, like, just really to... emphasize, look how Jack James yeah, Bond l- is. Yeah, look how big this man's body in this tight little suit. But I think that would be a really draining thing on your body physically, considering mm-hmm. the fact that, like, if you're Roger Moore, you don't have to do anything. You have to run around, shoot a couple of blanks, kiss a pretty lady, and then you go home. Yeah, like, old, you go rewatch the old ones, and it's 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 a lot more distant explosion from a gadget. Things that are, like, big and flashy. A flamethrower scene, mm-hmm. a, a secret weapon that's, like, a pen or whatever. But now it is all, like, straight knife fights and, like, beating people down super hard. And then in other spy movie news... Oh, yeah, this is... We got of... the trailer for Black Widow, the standalone 
Scarlett Johansson film set in the era right after Civil War in the MCU. It certainly looks like a superhero movie. Yeah, I'll see it. I'm too far deep into this stuff to not go and see it at this point, so I might as well. I like the cast a lot. I'm not so sure about the tone of it because I was really interested in them doing a smaller scale spy story, but this just, it looks like Deadpool. Yeah. Yeah. It just looks like a big CGI, rubbery, explosion-laden superhero film, which I don't feel like is a very good fit for this character, and I'm a little sad to see that this is the direction they're taking that movie. This trailer made me way less interested in this movie, which is too bad. me too. I don't know. I don't know what this point is, I guess, is where I land here. And then finally, some additional Batman casting news, where Matt Reeves just tweeted that Peter Skarsgård has been cast in the movie, he didn't give any indication to what role he's playing, but I'm interested in seeing what Peter Skarsgård can do. He's a good actor. Yeah, let's see if they're just, you know, we're going to get more casting news. I can guarantee that it's going to be more big names. So What if he's just making these up on the fly? What if Matt Reeves is just tweeting out <laughs> actors and then he's like, see, the news outlet covered this, so now you got to do it. That's genius, I've got to say. I, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see that actually go down. All right, I think that wraps us up for news, so let's move on to the Rankin and Bass Cinematic Univoice. I am so full of Christmas feelings after, after <laughs> all of these screenings. Like, my God, it is... Let me break down for the audience real yeah, quick. What we're it, counting man. within the Rankin and Bass Cinematic Universe canon, these are all the ones that are explicitly linked and referenced in each other, making them like a cohesive universe. The only one that we are leaving out is the Easter Bunny is Coming to Town, which is only connected by the narrator, which is also a holdover from Santa Claus is Coming to Town, but it is horrible, and it has nothing to do with any of our main characters, so we'll briefly touch on that. But the ones we are going to talk about are Santa Claus is Coming to Town, The Year Without a Santa Claus, Jack Frost, Twas the Night Before Christmas, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Rudolph's Shiny New Year, Frosty the Snowman, Frosty's Winter Wonderland, and finally, the endgame level team-up event, Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July. So I think we're going to start off with the one that we all like the most. Because I think it's the best one. First off, we're talking Santa Claus is Coming to Town, where Santa Claus fights the Nazis, but also not really. And, you know, that's a good way to pitch it to somebody who's, for some reason, if they have never seen it, it's... Yeah, Imperial Germany origin story that's like they throw in every Santa reference they can into there to build out that that character. We get young Chris Kringle left on the doorstep of a family of diminutive toy makers who raise him as one of their own. And when he's big enough and strong enough, he decides to take their toys across the mountain of the whispering wind to be played with by the children of Sombertown run by the tyrannical Burgermeister Meisterburger. So evil. He hates joy so much. That's just... He's just like... What is the reason for that? He's the mayor of Sombertown, so maybe that has something to do with it. The town where all the children have anemia? The town where all the children are like child labor children, where they're just like doing the laundry and... I guess that that plays into it. It's a lot of, like, reasoning for stockings. It's going, like, down the list of, like, children asking questions. Why does he go down the chimneys? Why does he put stuff in stockings? Why is it this and that? And so this is pretty much the only official... 
Well, I, I count it as official. The only official real Santa backstory. I really love this movie. I think it does give relatively sound explanations for a lot of the weirder Santa Claus-oriented traditions. It also sets up Mickey Rooney playing Santa Claus, who will play Santa Claus in the majority mm-hmm. of the Reagan and Bass movies going forward. And also, Burgermeister Meisterberger is played delightfully by Paul Frees, who pops up in a lot of these different Rankin and Bass movies as different characters. But he's also the ghost host on the Haunted Mansion. He's Fritz the (laughs) German bird in the Tiki Room at Walt Disney World. He's a very prolific 1960s voice actor. Huh, I had no idea. Yeah, he's great in that. And uh, a big thing about this one is that the music in it is great. I think the only one that can put its music up against this one is Rudolph. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. And it's just... I mean, a lot of these other ones have got, the music kind of stalls things for me a little it bit. Really where I'm, does. Like, I'm trying to get back to this this whimsical Christmas story, and I, I have to listen to a not a great song for two and a half minutes. What's your standout? I, I already know the answer, Seamus, but what is the standout number in Santa Claus is Coming to Town for you? One foot in front of the other is... Because that's the only one I can remember. <laughs> it's the only one that gets stuck in your head for a week after watching this mm-hmm. movie. There was another one in that that I hold very highly. First Toymaker to the King. First Toymaker to the King also gets me, Slash too. no more Toymakers to the King. As right, the the, there's the, the back and forth there. Where Tanta Kringle and Burgermeister Meisterberger sing two versions of the same song. And they're both wonderful. We've also not touched on Keenan Wynn's Winter Warlock who is the first person that Santa is able to genuinely make the life better of. So fast. He's mm-hmm. a threat very briefly, and then he is he's turned around swiftly by the heart of Santa Claus. He scared the dickens out of me as a kid, though. Like, whenever Kringle narrowly escapes him on his way to Sombertown the first time, and he goes, I'll get you, Chris Kringle, and he's all in shadow and the lightning's flashing. I feel that. I mostly got that, if we're jumping ahead a little bit, the abominable snowman in Rudolph was the one that got me as a kid. I was not, like, scared, scared, but it definitely freaked me out a little bit. Final thoughts on Santa Claus is coming to town? It's the best one. It's got lots of good lore in it. I think I'd watch a remake of this just to see a lot of it expanded on. Oh, we didn't even talk about Topper the Penguin. Oh, love Topper the Penguin. Great sidekick to Santa Claus who is... Very lost on his way to the South Pole. That's mm-hmm. where he's trying to go. Yeah. Who also certainly dies immediately after the events <laughs> of this movie because he's no. not in any of the other ones, and he's also a penguin. Yeah. Rest in peace. We talk, we try not to talk about that. But yeah. It really is the Captain America, the first Avenger of these movies. Just in that, it is great and perfect intro to Christmas stuff. Why is everyone mean to the warlock? They, he's a he warlock. keeps wanting to be called by a certain name, and they never call him that. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that's just, like, sad. That's just rude. Yeah, that's just true. Rude you, humor. You think Jessica would be more understanding, you yeah, know? Yeah, right? Uh, I, I don't, don't know. think that's just what passed as a joke in 1960. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But moving into our next story, as told by Jessica, we've got a new narrator. In our first film, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, we had S.D. Kluger, Special Delivery Kluger, who, as you learn in Easter Bunny is Coming to Town, was raised in a village entirely populated by children, but we won't get into that right now. Weird implications, go on. As a replacement for S.D. Kluger, because pretty much every one of these has a central narrator figure, mm. Jessica, aka Mrs. Claus, steps up as the narrator of the fully formed version of Santa that you think of in Year Without a Santa Claus. Yeah, this one's probably the second best one. In my lineup, for sure, that's like, uh, 
don't know. It's still got a lot of the good catchy music. Two songs. Yeah, the two songs. I mean, they, hey, they have Blue Christmas in there. Oh yeah, the super them, sad though. Blue Christmas as sung by a depressed little girl. It's heartbreaking. The it's little so girl sad. that writes to Santa pleading with him to come to her because he's decided that he's going to take a year off because nobody cares about him anymore and he's sick. And he's tired, and he just wants Christmas vacation. Which, and you know what? I can't blame him. Yeah, he works one day a year. He works. He's always watching. I'm sure that takes a toll. <laughs> I didn't and care for that at all. You know the window. The whole snowball thing. Which we will get back to later in Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July. Oh, yeah. Santa's ability okay. to pack a snowball and watch he can still other people. That. Who made Children? Santa Claus judge, jury, and executioner? I'm trying to think. In... Tonta Kringle? I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> well, then. again, we're going to have to loop back to this in Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July, where oh we get a, a lot of the lore, a lot of the backstory. <laughs> the thick of it is all, is all mixed in there. I think my favorite part of Year Without a Santa Claus, other than the obvious standouts of Heat Miser and Snow Miser, mm-hmm. I really like Santa just out and about in the normal world, trying to interact with normal people. Reminded me a little bit of... Um, Miracle that, on 34th Street. That's exactly right, Miracle on 34th Street. Another movie, along with most of these that I watched on VHS tapes in my Catholic grade school growing up every oh, yeah. single year. And he's just trying to understand why people aren't interested in him anymore. He's trying to remain relevant, you know, for the kids. Specifically, <laughs> Iggy Thistlewhite. <laughs> The most annoying child ever put on cable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, yeah. So, what's the important lore that we learn in Santa Claus Comes to Town? Well, we meet Jingle and Jangle, who are Santa Claus's most incompetent elves. That's right. We meet Heat Miser and Snow Miser, who control the snow and the heat in the entire world. So, they're like weird demigods, who are the children of Mother Nature. Who is, like, Zeus God? Like, the queen of all elementals of mm-hmm. Christmas? Is she, though? Is she, Something bad? we'll touch on a little later. Oh, my goodness gracious, everything comes back. No one's ever really gone. Oh, boy. But yeah, I like this one a lot. I think it probably could lose 15 minutes. Yeah. But I enjoy it. Like, Santa Claus is Coming to Town has very little fat on it. Yeah, This one sure. has a little bit more fat on it. I feel bad for... What's the reindeer's name? Oh, Vixen. I was getting to... Vixen. That was Vixen. I feel, yeah. I feel bad for Vixen. It's, it's a cute little reindeer. Jingle and Jangle are not the best. <laughs> well, let's move on yeah, to our next Yeah, let's special. keep going. Next in line is Twas the Night Before Christmas. This one was, you know, enjoyable, nice little short. I love Even Miracle Needs a Hand. I think that yeah. is maybe my favorite song from all of these specials. Wow, interesting. It's either that or one foot in front of the other. Mm. But I think it's got a really charming little storyline. It does not overstay its welcome. The animation is 2D, which is one of the only Rankin and Bass 2D specials within yeah. this little canon. And I think the character design is really cute. I love the whole clock that plays Christmas yeah. Touch of Calling Santa Santa in order to keep Santa from being mad at the town. I really like the the mouse family subplot. That's assistant to the clockmaker family. Yeah, that's really good. And then that jerk mouse child is the whole reason that like Santa Claus is angry and I love this movie because <laughs> one it is the only one of these where we truly get pretty much completely removed from the legendary figures yeah. of Christmas, and we're just focusing on normal, everyday people with 
the Old Testament God wrathful <laughs> Santa Claus that says one person wrote me a letter that signed all of us. You know what? No Christmas you're, you're for you. Done. Christmas is done. He Canceled. Tur- he turned Joshua Trundle's wife into a pillar of salt. <laughs> God. Oh, it's very interesting. It's smaller than it's like only like twenty four minutes or whatever, but it's in the last I, five of them are the poem. Yeah, I do particularly like that it is like. We're thrown into the world of these people who are like, all right, magic is a thing. Some people are weird, and their denial of the <laughs> greater magic forces at work are, are unexplainable. Because it really seems that the only person in Twice the Night Before Christmas that doesn't believe in Santa is the little mouse child with the glasses. Well, he says, like, me and my friends wrote that letter or whatever. But he like, didn't have any He didn't friends. have any friends. <laughs> that, little, that little punk. But, I, yeah, no, this one is, I think, just little and pitch perfect, and yeah. we're ready to move on to bigger, more confusing fish with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I haven't seen this one in a minute, but re-watching it now, it's, uh... it's. I mean, it's great. I'll yeah. say right now that it's, it's like, one of the better ones for sure, but... Mickey Rooney is not Santa Claus in this one. Is he not? He is not. It's one of the earlier ones that they made chronologically, in terms of, like, it was one of the first specials right, that yeah. Rainbow Bass produced. So they didn't have all their ducks in a row yet. This is the one that features the least amount of references to other works within the Rankin and Bass universe, but a lot of other works reference it. Yeah. Uh, Santa Claus is a jerk in this one a little bit. <laughs> really? It, it's the same kind of vengeful... <laughs> yeah, it's like a me... You kind of see, like, young, sharp, snappy Chris Kringle from Santa Claus is Coming to Town versus, like, Year Without a Santa Claus. You kind of... That's his era of just, like, kind of, like, curmudgeonly Santa Claus it's, a little bit. It's almost like his He's midlife old. crisis or yeah. something. Like, he, he doesn't know... I've been doing this for 200 years. What have I accomplished? You know, like... Oh, <laughs> God. Existential Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. What am I doing with my eternity? Also, Mrs. Claus. <laughs> yeah, Mrs. Claus, movie. classically is very removed from what we know as the characterization of Jessica in every single other film. Yeah, that is that is very true. She's mean. <laughs> she is a nag in a very dated way, I would say. I would agree, I think. I, I felt the same way. And I would also say that her character design looks nothing like how Jessica slash Mrs. Claus looks in the rest of the movies. She does have her telltale bun on mm. top, I guess, but she has black hair, her joints are much more angular, as are Santa. Santa's really skinny. In this yeah, one. he is. But also, weird. nobody likes a skinny Santa. So classically, nobody likes a skinny Santa. I think this is the craziest cast of characters so far. I know we all grew up with them, but like in a vacuum, just approaching them as like rational adults, we've got Hermie the misfit elf that wants to be a dentist. And then we've also got Yukon Cornelius, a prospector who's looking for peppermint. He's so he's, cool. Love Yukon Cornelius. Cool. He's like the... He's like... He's a badass, man. He's like the hero. He's he's, he's the around. Han Solo he, of this universe. He's the Han for Solo sure. of this universe, for sure, dude. And then there is the insanity that is the island of misfit toys ruled by the flying-winged lion king Moonracer. Yeah, what... That's nonsense. That is absolute <laughs> ridiculousness. It's pretty fun. I love the cowboy that rides the ostrich. I think that yeah, informed ninety percent of my artistic sensibility to this day. <laughs> I I think the Island Mr. Toys. It's a fun time. Yeah, there's... the music in this one's pretty solid. I like I like we are Santa's elves. I like we're a couple of misfits, which we may or may not see pop up in another movie. Oh Isn't my one god! Of those toys just a straight up gun. Yeah, it's it, a it, gun. He shoots jelly though. 
that's the best. Why is he, <laughs> Why is he a misfit toy? Well, that's the point, isn't it? Is that they figure out that, hey, maybe the children will like these misfit toys. Okay, this is a brief aside. There is an entirely non-canon sequel to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Back in the 90s, there was a company that wanted to produce a sequel to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and they just wanted to call it, like, Rudolph and the Island of Misfit Toys and market it as a sequel. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is in the public domain as a mm-hmm. character, so anybody can make a sequel, kind of like The Wizard of Oz, right? But the problem was, since they hadn't made a first movie, they could not make a sequel to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, so they turned out, and you've probably seen this on TV or at Walgreens around Christmas time. It is a 2D animated Rudolph the movie. It's got, like, Whoopi Goldberg. What? Oh, my um, God. It has Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time on the soundtrack. Oh, the best Christmas song of all time. And then, so it's just, like, a retelling of, of this movie, but worse. But then they made a sequel called Rudolph and the Island of Misfit Toys, which is an animation style completely separate from their original one. It's a CG animated movie that is made to look exactly like this movie and using the characters from this movie even though those characters are not in what was considered their first movie as you've got Yukon Cornelius you've got Hermie you've got Clarice you've got Rudolph you've got all the ones you've got the Bumble you know Mm. there is the main villain oh Jamie Lee Curtis plays a hippo (laughs) in a tutu in this movie why not and then the main villain is a character called the Toy Taker oh god who is voiced by Rick Moranis, who steals children's toys on Christmas night after Santa's delivers them. And what you find out at the end is that he is a teddy bear that wasn't wanted when he was given as a gift. This is insane. This is wild. It's heartbreaking. He has a giant blimp. He has a (laughs) giant vacuum tube that goes down the chimney and sucks up all the toys. It's absolutely heartbreaking, his storyline. But at the end, you get to see him get delivered to a child who loves him and he kind of, they do the kind of Andy's coming, like flop on mm. the ground. But then later, when the little girl's asleep, he like, he like wakes up for a second and he's like, this is the happiest day of my entire life. God dang, man. That's, that's, why wasn't that official? <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that in, 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 in an official light as I could. That sounds actually great. Well, you can find, I'm sure, the whole thing on YouTube. It is awful the music oh is no, awful. <laughs> no. It, the, the music is awful and it's way too long but the character of the toy taker is very interesting also Hermie has like a weird dentist mobile that is a boat and a car and like a zamboni what? i love and that he gives king moon racer a root canal <laughs> oh my god that is that is extra weird, but I, I kind of want to go watch that now, if I'm being honest. I recommend it. It's not in the Rankin Bass universe canon, but it is fun. So let's wrap up with Rudolph, though, the canon Rudolph. The Bumble is great. Clarice is certainly in this movie. Everybody in this movie is a jerk, except yeah. for Clarice, Rudolph, Hermie, and Yukon. Yeah, pretty much. All, all in all, it's very good. The, the abominable snowman is scary until he's like enslaved and then he's then he's fine. I really like this one. It's one of the it's one of the better ones for sure. All right, moving on to a sequel that picks up immediately after the events of this film, Rudolph's Shiny New Year. I had never seen this before. Weird movie, Garrett. It's weird insane. movie, Ricardo. It is it is so weird. This is where these really start to go off the deep end in terms of just 
crazy world building that makes absolutely no sense. So let's just kind of break down a little bit, like, how this world is supposed to supposedly work. Yeah, you start us off, because I am even a little hazy on, like... Starting on the evening after Rudolph lights the way for Santa Claus, we find out that there's a problem coming up in under a week with the new year. You see, Father Time, who exists in this universe, has misplaced Happy, the baby new year of the new year. And if he doesn't have the baby new year, then it will stay December 31st forever and time will be at a standstill. The reason that baby new year has gone missing is that there's Eon the Terrible, who is a giant vulture who lives for an eon, but his eon is up on December 31st. So he knows if he steals baby new year that he will avoid being turned into snow and ice if that will stay December 31st forever. And that is just the tip of the iceberg of the insanity that's in this movie. So Rudolph, General Ticker, who is a soldier with a clock in his stomach, the great quarter past five, quart for short, a camel whose hump is a clock, your boy Big Ben the whale, who has a clock for a tail. tail. There's a lot of clocks going on here. It's all time-based. Are off to go find Baby New Year. Now, there is the archipelago of last years where every single year that's ever existed has an island, and they're presumably checking every single island for Baby New Year, and whatever island they're on, it's that year forever. It exists outside of space and time. Which, there's... Revive that, why don't you? That's, like, the craziest, fun, time-travel Christmas concept ever. I'd like to think that that's where Lost took place, was on the archipelago of Lost Time. (laughs) It's weird, man. That's, That's for sure. And they meet different babies New Year who are on all of the islands in the archipelago, including one that's basically just Ben Franklin for 1776, a caveman for one million years B.C., and then they go to 1023, which is just a fairy tale island where all the fairy tales are real. So not only is there the whole Christmas element to this cinematic universe, but also all the fairy tales are real. Sure. It's magic. Magic is just like we're getting a bigger and bigger reveal every time that there's more and more magic to go. So maybe New Year has this recurring problem wherever he takes off his hat. He has big ears. And people laugh at him, which apparently is very upsetting. And also, it's apparently very different from having a red shiny nose, because that is not... Like, it's so very much the same Rudolph message here. You know, Baby New Year and Rudolph, they have a little bonding experience. But the way that Eon is eventually defeated is Baby New Year takes off his hat, and Eon laughs so hard that it apparently warms his insides so much that he is immortal? What? (laughs) Yeah, it's just like... When if you have Christmas spirit by the end of one of these movies, you're like, uh, you're like an honorary god. Basically, you just like get special powers too. Once again, we'll get into it in the oh craziest god. one of them all: Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July. Oh my god, that's. And what's really cool about this segment in Rudolph's Shiny New Year is that when they're going back and retelling the story of Rudolph's origin from the first movie. It's actually animated in the style of Twas the Night Before Christmas right down to Santa's character model. So firmly placing it in a after Twas the Night Before Christmas chronology, but also firmly planting Twas the Night Before Christmas within this little tight story. 
it's it's weird to keep track of a little bit, but it's 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 interesting. I want to know if anybody but us is. Yeah, I mean, who even knows at this point? It's going to be the diehards. But I think we can't dwell in this insanity for too much no, longer. No, we'll get lost. We'll get lost here. Let's hit Frosty's Domain and Frosty's Winter Wonderland kind of as one because they're very they're structurally very much the same. The same story, except for. Well, I mean, you know, the first one is just the song broken down into scenes where they Frosty, build Frosty. Yeah, build Frosty. There's like this evil magician that that has a hat that he doesn't know is real magic until it gets put on the head of the snowman. And then he's, like, super ready to, like, be the arbiter of whether or not this snowman lives or not. Like, he's, like, ready to steal his hat back and make money off of it. At the end of the film, he goes off, of the first Frosty, he goes off to the North Pole, presumably where he at first makes acquaintance of Rudolph and Santa Claus, Mm -hmm. which will come into play very soon. (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, And then in the sequel, we get Jack Frost in Frosty's Winter Wonderland, where Frosty gets his lovely bride, Crystal. Yeah. In the intro, they're doing really good rhyming poetry, like, getting into the actual story. And then it's like, did you have you ever heard about how Frosty got his wife? And then it, like, ushers us into the story. And I, like, I was taken aback. I wasn't expecting this to be where it went. I think uh, Frosty's Winter Wonderland is extremely charming. Yeah, it's fun. Like, it's a very classic Christmas tale thematically of just, like, a lonely person searching for where they belong and yeah. for their family. I very much enjoyed that they they do a callback to the uh, the traffic cop who swallows his whistle. Uh-huh. I just thought that was that was personally a, one of my favorite details of that second one. They're very much similar movies and they're J- fun. Jack Frost in this one, despite being a protagonist in his own Rankin of Ass, is the villain. In this? Yeah. I mean, he, he's angry because he wants to be, like, the face of winter, which, like, makes sense. But, like many of these, the conflict, when confronted with, like... Logic or reason? Pretty much just, like, love magic. If, yeah. they, if they're confronted with that, then uh, he turns nice, just like most other villains, and uh, that's pretty much it on that one. Great. So now we get to talk about Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July. So what did you guys think of this insane journey that we all went on, Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July? Why is it set in July? In the uh, Rudolph's shiny new year, that's still like creeping away from Christmas almost a little too much, but Mm -hmm. now it's just, it's a circus, it's the middle of summer, there's magic amulets for Frosty's family, It's, it's crazy. So we spend the first few minutes explaining the concept that before Santa, before Rudolph, before all of it, at the North Pole, there were two titans. There was the Queen of the Borealis and the King of the North Pole. And they are in eternal war to try to see who can gain control of the North Pole. This seems to pretty much be, like, the motivator for most of the antagonists is, like, they want whatever kind of fame or control that the more famous Christmas icons have. And it's always, like, an ice wizard who's, like, you know, I should be winter mascot, but it's this reindeer. And then they... So what are all the threads that tie together in this movie? Because we learn that Rudolph derives his shiny nose power from... The Queen of the Borealis. Yeah, it's why? like... Why? Why did she do that to him? 
it's a way to, because Winterbolt, oh, the king yeah, of the North yeah. Pole, who sent that fog, that storm into Santa's wake so that he would not be able to deliver presents that Christmas so that he could take back over this but role. She did, didn't she do that at his birth, the whole nose thing? Yeah, because she knew yeah. that he was going to come. But eventually that will happen. Yeah, she knew it eventually okay. it was going to happen. We have Santa referenced multiple times the events of Santa Claus is coming to town. We yep. see a flashback to Santa Claus is coming to town. We see him and Jessica discussing their relationship and how far they've come and the fact that he gave her a China doll back when they first met. Obviously, Frosty is in this of movie. Of course. Obviously, his family. Crystal is in this movie, and we meet his two kids, Chili and Millie. Looking at Santa Claus is coming to town and Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July, we also see that Winterbolt has the same power to compact snow and look into it that Santa was taught by the Winter Warlock. So the Winter Warlock is like a Satanist who worships the evil magic. That makes sense, though. I mean, until he's redeemed later in that movie, he is pretty pretty evil. They also share a very similar look. Like, the evil Winter Warlock and Winterbolt yeah, have very similar like faces. The same puppet, slightly changed. Yeah, <laughs> so is weird. that possible? Who knows? So Santa Claus is coming to town. Rudolph. Frosty. Frosty's Christmas in July. We see Jingle and Jangle from Year with Anna Santa Claus multiple times throughout this movie. It seems to me that Winterbolt also shares a bit of a resemblance with Snow Miser. Yeah. And also, it kind of seems like Mother Nature is in very much the same vein of Winterbolt and the Queen of the Borealis. So, throughout this special, Rudolph is losing the power of his nose because the Queen of the Borealis is losing her power. And he eventually gives it up completely so that Frosty and his family's amulet's power are able to maintain so that they don't (laughs) die. This is too much, man. Amulets and the circus. We didn't even touch that they're in a circus. Like an hour and 30 minutes? It's an hour and 26 minutes. It's crazy. For no reason. (laughs) For no reason. I think they thought they were going to be tapping into a far larger market when they made this, perhaps. I'm all about it. I mean, it's it's great and completely bonkers, but like it's, it's long and crazy. During Rudolph's low point, after he's given up the power of his nose and is wondering what he's going to do, we see the return of Big Ben from Rudolph's Shiny New Year. So they tie that one in, and he is like, I'm going to go hit help. I'll be back, I guess. And he's he's in there for one scene. (laughs) But then, later in the film, after Rudolph's low point, Frosty, racked with guilt over the fact that Rudolph's nose no longer glows, even though Rudolph's nose... For Frosty and his children's life, like their seems like no toss up, but yeah. Frosty's pretty pretty racked with guilt about There's it. Snow people. But Winterbolt makes him an offer that if he is given Frosty's hat, which would remove the life from Frosty, that he will let Rudolph's nose glow back in return. However, after the deal is made, as Rudolph says, "You know you can't actually do that." God. So Winterbolt has. Taking the life of Frosty, and Rudolph gives chase. This is a pretty decent, like, little action sequence. No, yeah, it totally is. But now we get the cap-wielding Mjolnir moments of this cinematic oh universe. Oh my god, that's exactly what it is. I, d- I didn't even put that together at the time, but... Rudolph, in the midst of fighting Winterbolt, takes Frosty's hat, it ends up on his head, and boom! 
the light comes back in an epic show of magic and power. Rudolph is a god now himself, and he will <laughs> take his vengeance on these gods. What I'm, is this hat? It's a magic it's hat. It's a magic hat. <laughs> that, that jerk magician just found just an all-powerful hat. hat yeah. That he couldn't use? I guess so. He wasn't worthy. And so it seems like that's the happy end of the story, but then after Winterbolt is defeated, they realize that, oh no, his amulets don't work anymore. So Frosty and his family die. Yeah, yeah. They're like the second time this special that Frosty has met his demise. But like they melt. It's not yeah. just no, you yeah, can put they, the hat back on him. They're they're done. Puddles with like you see like the children's hats like in a puddle of their remains. It's Where's very gruesome. Follow through Rankin back. I remembered very little <laughs> about this special. I remembered them singing rocking around the Christmas tree. Yeah. And I remembered the image of Frosty and his children's <laughs> his dead, dead family on screen. <laughs> oh, God. But that's when Big Ben shows up. He went and got help. He went to South America. Oh, yeah. Where it's winter in the summertime. So he brought back Jack Frost, who, despite his issues with Frosty and Crystal in Frosty's Winter Wonderland, puts them right back together again. And, and, they, and they fly off to mm-hmm. the North Pole together. So, with Santa and Mrs. Claus. Oh, yeah. So it's a nice, happy ending. It's insanity. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's almost too much at certain points. It's like, I might, I'll probably revisit this next uh, Christmas season, if I'm being honest. It is just, it's, yeah. it's, it's insane. It's like the buffet platter of Christmas. It's a really good Santa Claus-focused series of movies that's just kind of surrounded by a bunch of other stuff. I feel like you could edit this movie down to a nice, tight 35 minutes. Yeah, probably. And that'd be really good. But as it stands now, it's way too long. It's unfocused. (laughs) Half the musical numbers are just so boring. And also because it's aimed at children, they have to explain everything 15 times. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. They've got good characters. The character work is very good to just Mm -hmm. do more... It's absolutely insane. And I think it's the perfect ending to the Rankin and Bass cinematic universe. How many of these have you guys seen? Let us know what you think of them. If you watch Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July, please tweet us, email us, let us know what you thought, because it's crazy town. Absolutely. My God. They make more after this? Is this like the This was pretty much it. This was there were more specials after this, but they didn't have anything to do with the primary characters. We forgot to mention, at the very end, we get a reprise of We're a Couple of Misfits. Yeah, we that do. That Rudolph and Frosty sing, so forget Hermie, I guess. Yeah, he's like, nowhere even found in this movie. You know Dentists are BS, screw he's you. he's a nerd. Yeah, exactly. He's a goddamn nerd. They just decide that he's not worth it anymore, but... That wraps us up for the Rankin and Bass Cinematic Universe. Let's move on. Today's pop culture reference is the I Want song. Garrett, why don't you break that down? The I Want song is a trope within musicals and movie musicals where the main character spells out exactly what their entire goal is for the rest of the story. So there are a couple of these throughout these Rankin and Bass specials that we've been talking about. From Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer were a couple of misfits where Hermie and Rudolph talking about just wanting to fit in to something like In Santa Claus is Coming to Town, the first Toymaker to the King, and No More Toymakers to the King, where Burgermeister Meisterberger and Tana Kringle spell out their respective desires, with Tana Kringle's ultimately passing on to Chris Kringle 
our primary character. This is also very prevalent in almost every Disney musical that you can think of. In there's a uh, Lion King is just can't wait to be king. Little Mermaid is part of your world. Hercules, uh, I'll go the distance. It's just like a like a very hopeful triumphant kind of like this is what I want and it's usually you know explaining what they're gonna get at the end almost every time but yeah keep an eye out for that it is pretty much in every family or kids musical you can think of great Seamus where's Riley I'm gonna go ahead and say Riley is on the third floor of the library working on his film final right now Seamus you're right. I'm exactly right. You're exactly oh right. Oh my god, I'm a psychic. I didn't know that beforehand. Oh, we would never have forgotten to turn the microphone on to record this segment nope. previously. No, sir. But gosh darn it, I'm I'm proud of myself uh, for getting it so close, Riley. Good luck. Keep working hard, buddy. I know your I know your film project is gonna be dynamite. Let's move on to Mando Bros. Now it's time for Mando Bros, the segment where we break down the latest episode, The Mandalorian. We actually have two episodes to cover this week, Chapter 4 and Chapter 5, but right now we're going to start with Chapter 4, titled Sanctuary. Damn, I'm still I'm still pretty floored by all of these episodes every time I pop them on, for sure. And uh, I thought this was a pretty great episode. Yeah, it, it, it seemed... I, I probably say this every week, like, it does seem like this contained plot for this episode was pulled from, like, a serialized... Uh, it's the like, Magnificent Seven. It really is yeah. just, like, an old cowboy, me-TV, western... <laughs> we're gonna go help the village who's under attack from the raiders, and, like... I quite like that. I'm I'm enjoying this. It has the pleasures of, like, a serialized western without the insane, boring aspects of a serialized <laughs> western. Yeah. The Mandalorian and Baby Yoda, they're laying low on this planet. They get approached by Pillboy. Pillboy, <laughs> yes, that's what I wanted to bring up. So this is really a hell of other podcast. Yeah, th- even even when we're not doing that segment, we can't escape Pillboy. The Mandalorian gets hired by Pillboy yeah. to come protect his village, and the Mandalorian accepts because it's nice, remote, off the beaten path. He thinks that's a good place for him to lay low. Uh, in the first part of the episode, we get to see this village being raided by these, just, you know, just like a raider tribe who's yeah, like coming in to steal their fish and their money and whatever they have. And uh, they're set up that, like they can't just leave because like this weird fishing culture is their like family like, legacies as they've mm-hmm. been there for generations, and... I thought that they really did a good job showing us that culture, setting up that culture in a short amount of time, because it felt like a lived-in Star Wars thing. Mm. It didn't just feel like, oh, and now we're doing Tatooine, but it's not Tatooine. Like, it felt like its own thing, but it also felt fully fleshed out, which you don't get a lot in the newer Star Wars stuff. Yeah. A lot of the newer Star Wars stuff is just derivative of something from previously in Star Wars. Yeah, it, it, it reminded me a good amount of, like, the, in the Clone Wars, often they'll, they'll throw in episodes a lot like this of just, like, a planet that we haven't heard of before and a tribal people that, like, need some kind of help that is kind of cleanly wrapped up in one episode, pretty much. And I think I Clone Wars is inspired by 50s and 60s westerns as well, a little yeah. bit, not to this extent. But I do think it has that aspect of it's an action-driven television series that has to do with the fringes of the civilized world, the mm-hmm. frontier, literally. Yeah. It's almost like space is 
the final frontier. Oh my, wrong franchise, buddy. Good lord. But the Mandalorian, he ends up, he takes a ex-shock trooper. Yeah, but like a New Republic shock trooper? No, he lies to the villagers when he says she's New Republic. Oh, okay. So I was lied to as a viewer, and I was like... I, when when she's kind of explaining that at first in the, the bar when they meet, Kara? Uh, Kara? It's like C-A-R-A. I yeah. Don't know. I don't know whether it's... We're, I hope we see Carl Weathers some more, but not quite yet. And and, and it's she kind of explains her past, and I, I rewound it once or twice, and I still didn't get it. So I, I looked it up. I look I just looked up her character, and like so far the information online says she's a New Republic shock trooper, but that could have well people don't people can't pick up on the yeah. subtleties like me, I suppose. They have a little bit of a standoff because she thinks that he, as a bounty hunter, is there for her, but he's really just there to lay low, which is the same thing she's there for. And we get a nice, this town ain't big enough for yeah. the two of us. We also get a great, uh, you want some soup line? Made me laugh real, real hard because mm-hmm. I'm finally getting those Baby Yoda memes where he's <laughs> sipping a little bowl. Our shock trooper and the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda, they're all off to this village to protect it from the raiders, but they find out that there is an ATST that the Raiders have. So this is a whole new ball game. Like an ATST is a much larger beast. And something that I really like about this more ground level live action Star Wars property is that we're recontextualizing things that in Star Wars the traditional Star Wars saga, which is such a massive undertaking, it's a this huge epic that we don't get the time to see things from a ground level all that often, really. We're always focused on Vader and Luke and mm. the battle for the universe, but, like, what is an ATST terrorizing a village look like? And it's horrifying. Like No, yeah, they're like... It, it almost feels like a dinosaur, like a giant monster preying mm-hmm. on the people. They don't even go into too much detail about, like, how or why this is here or how they the raiders got it or who's functioning it we don't even see like who's piloting it it's just kind of like this bigger like i said they kind of treat it like a giant monster Mm -hmm. that's like not in the control of anyone else this is a choice that i really like and something that i wish the sequels had done which is just like there's all of this imperial stuff presumably left all over the galaxy after the fall of the empire it's gonna fall into the hands of desperate people yeah and I wish that that's what the First Order was in the sequels instead of just the Empire again. But yeah. that's something I'm really enjoying that the Mandalorian is showing me. If What happens when the Empire collapses and the New Republic can't get out to that outer rim and support everybody? Yeah, I think we're going to get a lot of that in the upcoming episodes and seasons. It's just, it's the Wild West. It's the frontier. It's everything that everybody mm-hmm. has like recognizes in this show. And it's it's... I don't know. It's exactly what I want in a show like this. Absolutely. It's, it's perfect. The action sequence was compelling. It felt a little short and simple to me of how they stopped the ATST. It, it was well established, but I feel like it was lacking a couple of moving parts to really make it as compelling as I wanted it to be. I'll say, like, the CG for the ATST was fantastic, and yeah. I feel like a lot of the care of this episode went into that fight and making it look really good in the nighttime and, like, kind of keeping the almost a little bit of the subtlety in the dark about everything yeah. that's happening. But, well, uh, that's a budgetary thing, yeah. I think. And also, the, that's why it's such a simple action sequence is because it looks great what it is 
but it would be sad if it looked worse and was longer. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, you know, we'll give we'll give it a couple a season or two and we're going to get some like big level action sequences once there's like legitimate fun. I mean, I know it's like the most popular show on Disney Plus or whatever, but like we end the episode, we've saved the village. The Mandalorian's going to leave Baby Yoda on the planet until a bounty hunter shows up and tries to take him out. Yeah, then he realizes that there's no... That he basically just has to, like, be on the run until he can, like, Like, be out of the spotlight for a long time, basically. Like the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, Hitchhiking on the Road is a sad song, please. All right, that wraps us up for Chapter 4. Let's move on to Season 1, Chapter 5... The Gunslinger. We get our very exciting back to the twin sons mm-hmm. of Tatooine right off the bat, which I... Uh, the iconic space shot. Yeah. Of, like, they frame it the exact same way of any of the Tatooine shots in the original trilogy of him coming down to the planet. And uh, once he once we get to this docking bay, we get the introduction of the amazing Amy Sedaris as a character whose name I don't even remember. She's just Amy Sedaris to me, and yep. she is, she's hilarious. She's, she's just always funny, and she, like, works well in this universe. She seems to take things seriously. She fits so well in Star yeah. Wars because she's perfect Star Wars comic relief in that she is both funny and over the top, but also taking herself seriously enough and her problems seriously enough, which is kind of Amy Sedaris' whole shtick. Yeah. Is that what if this person who has insane problems took them hyper-seriously? She's in this episode more than, like, some of the more main characters that have been promoted, like IG-11 and Kara from the previous episode. Like, she's got a little team of pit droids, which I'd love to see again. When we go to the iconic Moss Eisley Cantina, instead of a gruff, burly man working the counter, we have a droid. Yeah, I thought that was interesting as well, considering the cantina in A New Hope was the first time we ever heard the no droids policy in any Star Wars thing. But I thought that was cool. Yeah. And we meet a young bounty hunter. We meet him in a very specific place in the cantina. Yeah. The the infamous Greedo Han Solo showdown table where Han, of course, shot first. Filoni and Favreau, they're pretty big Star Wars nerds, so you would think, because this episode was directed by Dave Filoni. Yes, it was. I noticed that at the end, too. And do you know who the last episode was directed by? Oh, it was directed by, um, it was a name that really impressed me. Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah, Bryce Dallas Howard. She did a good job. I agree. I really like that one, and I think, I I would like to know what she specifically uh, added into that one, because I really like that. Well, you know, the Force is strong in her family. Yeah, apparently. Jeez. Well, he joins forces, the Mandalorian, in this episode with a new young bounty hunter who's just trying to make his way in the universe. He's trying to break into the bounty hunters guild, and you have to like complete at least one bounty. And he has this big puck that he's trying to that he's trying to snatch. That kid is played by Bobby Cannavale's son. And that is. I don't know why. The only thing I'm thinking is he's Commander Kent, New Jersey SWAT from Paul Blart Mall Cop, but he's in like good things too. <laughs> okay, he, yeah, he's, you're he's a have character to... actor. Okay. <laughs> Is he the stepdad and Ant-Man? Is that he the same guy? He absolutely is okay. the stepdad and Ant-Man. I, I'm glad I could pull that out, for sure. Yeah, so, but that's his son in this yeah, show. He, he was good in this episode. Yeah, I, I, really liked, I liked him in this. And they're go- the puck they're going after is an, it, it was like, like an it's assassin. Ex- like a yeah. famous assassin. 
who's played by Ming-Na Wen, who is Mulan. No kidding. Yeah. I have some thoughts about this new Mulan, but I guess I don't really... No, 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 like the Mulan. The original Mulan. The original, the voice of Mulan. Dope. Never mind. Awesome. I love that. Bringing it it back to classic Disney for Disney+. Plus. I'm into it. They go off on their nice little desert adventure. They had a speeder bike at Star Wars Celebration out uh, for presentation that I'm glad that we got to see in the show because I've been looking in the background for it because I thought maybe it's just going to be a background prop. But it is. But no, it's... Prominently he featured. rides that bad boy through the desert, which is we get a cool, you know, riding sequence in the in the mm-hmm. desert with both of them. That you know, very classic feeling. I, I I had those vibes for sure. We get some bartering with some Tuscan Raiders using sign language, which I yeah. thought that was really interesting. Interesting that the it kind of it also breaks back down to like the Mandalorian is a tracker. He can communicate with the tribal locals yep. like any other Western protagonist who has some weird past. So they get to their bounty. We kind of have a, a sniper showdown here where they're they're pinned behind a dune because uh, she has them in her sights uh, from her sniper. And uh, there's a very cool way where they like they wait till night and mm-hmm. they use flares and their uh, speeder bikes to to basically get the drop on her yep. on the ridge that she's on. And that was really cool. It was very Butch and Sundance like, uh, waiting up on the ridge. Totally. They get the drop on her after a good fist fight. Uh, with the new young buck bounty hunter. And that was pretty, like, well choreographed. It yeah, wasn't just totally. a couple of swings. It was, like, a genuine choreographed fight fight. Totally, yeah, yeah, While the Mandalorian is off getting another ride for them so they can escort her back to civilization, he's going to go find a dewback off in the desert. Of course. She is trying to talk him into turning on the Mandalorian. How much more his best scar alone would be worth than her entire bounty... Basically, it's a pretty swift transition into this guy who was yeah. begging Mando before to help him to, like, yeah, I could kill this Mandalorian myself. It's fine. Again, this is a classic Western trope. No, totally. Absolutely. There's the kid in the Magnificent Seven that wants so badly to be on the team. Yul Brenner keeps being like, no, no, no. And then eventually he, like. You also see characters like this pop up in other neo Westerns, like Firefly. There's a character that's very similar to this character. Just and kind of like a looking for the best thing for himself. Yeah. He turns, he kills his bounty. Yeah, he leaves her out there and goes to take Amy Sedaris and Baby Yoda hostage, which is, you don't want to do that to the Mandalorian. That guy has a real connection to that baby. And uh, he makes it all the way back to his ship at the hangar, where we have another showdown between mm-hmm. Mando and this new this new kid. And I like that Amy Sedaris is so clearly on his side. Yeah. Like, she's not an impartial party, which I think a lot of writers might have written her as. But during the final showdown, she helps him. She, you know, she's been taking care of Baby Yoda this whole time, and she... That was a nice subplot. She very much gets what's hers in the end, where uh, Mando dumps out all of his credits into her hands Mm -hmm. to just, like... Yeah, he's, he's kind of a cold character, but when he makes a small connection with somebody, he will, like, he, he's a ride or die. He goes hard for the mm-hmm. people that help him. How cute is Baby Yoda in this episode, James? Very cute. He's just waddle. He's walking around more. He's doing more actions with, like, props, like mm-hmm. sipping a bowl of soup and, you know, just, like, in general cooing and making noise. This was a good episode. I, it was pretty yeah. simple. It was simple. These last two were very much cut-and-dry Western uh, storylines, but I in no way hold anything against that. It was, like you said, it was simple, it was clean, it was entertaining. 
But we get one last tease at the end of this episode. We see a pair of boots approaching the dead bounty in the middle of the Tatooine desert. And I was thinking we were actually going to get a reveal. Yeah, me too a little bit. But it's just we kind of... We'll have to wait till next yeah, week. Yeah, shadowy figure. We'll see, we'll see how that plays out next week for it sure. It had a cape mm-hmm. or a long coat. I think it's likely Carl Weathers. Oh, that would be... I would like that if but that's... I wonder if that's to predict like I wonder if they just would have shown us his face if it was Carl Weathers yeah they might yeah to me it feels like a new character or maybe a A character we know from something else maybe a character we only know in name with Mm -hmm. some kind of connection to the criminal underworld who knows could be Werner Herzog could be Werner Herzog again see that is something they would hide from us probably yeah I, I could see that for sure so yeah I think this was a pretty strong episode I'm excited to see where we go next yeah, me too. I mean, we only got a couple episodes left in this season, so I can only imagine it's going to ramp up from here in the second half and that they're going to start setting up the uh, the greater um, plot elements at large there for this for this specific story, and I'm very excited to see who's in those boots. Absolutely. Until next week, guys, this has been Mando Bros. Now, it's time to save the rec center. Ricardo, what's your rec center? Hey, you guys remember Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends? Loved that show, of course. It holds up. It's, oh, you're rewatching pretty, it. It's pretty good. How are you I'm, watching it? What is it on? It is on Hulu. Man, everything's on Hulu. Good on you, Hulu. It's almost like you're owned by some large <laughs> corporate conglomerate that owns everything in the world. Seamus, what's your rec center? My rec center this week is going to be a classic horror movie. I know we're kind of out of the Halloween season already, but I saw Slumber Party Massacre for the first time the other day, and I, honest to God, couldn't think of a better example of, like, the perfect like, teen slasher film from the 80s that is just absolutely bonkers. The the killer uses, like, a foot-and-a-half-long giant drill as his weapon of choice, so it's, it's absolutely bonkers, but I, I, I loved it. Go check it out if you haven't. There are sequels that I've heard are also amazing. Sounds like a good time. I'm going to keep it in the holiday spirit for my rec center and recommend one of my favorite movies from the last few years, Arthur Christmas. It's an Aardman production who's the team behind Wallace and Gromit and Chicken Run, and it's about the family of Santa Claus and the legacy that is passed on from generation to generation. It's really heartwarming, and it has an amazing cast, including James McAvoy, Hugh Laurie, Bill Nye, Jim Broadbent. It's a great cast. It's incredibly funny. It has a tremendous amount of heart, and everybody should watch it this holiday season. You've been repping this one for a couple years now, and I honestly didn't know how many... uh big stars win it and I, I think it's on all the time every Christmas so I think maybe this year's that I'm gonna I'm gonna finally get that on for myself I'll sit you down and, and show Ooh, you the yeah, Blu-ray that'll be, that'll be wonderful alright well that about wraps us up for this episode thank you so much for joining us have a great week Merry Christmas we have so many Christmas episodes to go <laughs>